wanting to join up and do a science course this morning. I reckon there's a lot of people who have just been motivated. In fact, why don't you turn to the person next to you for a moment and just say, what fascinated you most about what Matt just said? Because there's a lot of good stuff. Why don't you just take 30 seconds to do that. What fascinated you the most about what Matt just said? Very good. All righty. You know, I'm constantly amazed. No, I've lost everyone. Good morning. Good afternoon. Glad. Why don't you continue on that discussion a little bit later when we get to the barbecue? It would be great to have some time outside to continue on that discussion. I'm constantly fascinated and surprised and delighted by the number of smarty pants people that we have in our community here um, because we've got Colleen Thomas here this morning and she is doing her uh, biology stuff at La Trobe as well. And then I was talking to Christy this week, uh, Christy and Brent, and she said, oh, doing some PhD studies. And I said, yeah. And she goes, I did mine 11 years ago. I said, what did you do yours on? She said, I was finding the protein that was turning on and off lactose in different sort of animals and we're doing it with cows as well and I went wow we have a whole bunch of smarty pants people and I reckon we can celebrate that that is a good 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 thing this week our staff went on a seminar and the seminar was to do with leadership anxiety and the thing that became quite apparent as I did this leadership anxiety course is that it actually became a bit of a therapy course for all of us. You know, you sign up for something, you think, this is good, this will be good for everyone, and then you realize, oh, I have to share some stuff at a personal level as well. And so we went to this leadership anxiety course run by a gentleman, Aussie guy living in the States called Steve Cuss. And uh, he said, look, what I want to talk to you about today, it's not trauma, it's not an emergency situation or the depression anxiety complex. What I want to talk about is just low-grade chronic anxiety. And he said, the way in which you identify this anxiety or this worry or this stress in your life is that you'll manifest some different scenarios. He says, sometimes uh, if you're experiencing it, you'll become irrational in your thinking. Um, you'll become reactionary, defensive. You will rant at the television. Yeah, so some people are just pointing at each other today, yep, ranting at the television, and, uh, or you'll actually become a little bit self-righteous, but one of the things that happens when you're feeling and experiencing anxiety in any group, because he studies systems theory, is that it's contagious. He said usually it starts with one or two people in a sports team, in a home, in a leadership group in your workspace, and it spreads, and uh, he's, so we spent the whole sort of the half of the day talking about this kind of low-level anxiety. 
And of course, we all said, no, no, none of us experienced this at all. It's everyone else. We never catch it. We, we never pass it on to anyone else because we're always totally in control of our emotions and our experiences and the way in which we respond to the world. But he said, if this ever happens to you, <laughs> then here's the, he said, we went through this system of saying, here's how you might respond to it. Firstly, noticing it, naming it, and then diffusing it. In fact, he said that when you become aware of it, you notice it or, and that you name it. Hey, are some people starting to feel a little bit worried, stressed, anxious? He says that's part of, in fact, the diffusing kind of process. But he said usually when some people are feeling anxious about things or worried or stressed, if you observe what happens in the room, some people get bigger and some people get smaller. I wonder what that's like for you and it might vary in different scenarios. And so if you, uh, he said, how else do you know if it's there? Because you might have the clicking pen syndrome or you might have the tapping foot syndrome or we might just get back to ranting at the television. <laughs> and so all of these ways of experiencing the sense of stress, anxiety, worry and how do we deal with it? If I can get the cassette tape, if, if I can get the, the podcast, then I'll send it to you and I think it would be great for you to actually have a listen to it. Cassette tapes, remember? The, yep, all right. <coughs> anxiety diffusion. So we're looking at this series, Quietly Loud, and it strikes me that if you're a Jesus follower, if you identify as being a Christian, then dealing with stress and worry and anxiety is just not only just part of the world in which we inhabit, but also part of our everyday experiences. Because someone who follows Jesus will have a growing sense of conviction about the way in which they see the world, and to know how do I actually operate as a Jesus follower, knowing that just intuitively, I will be in step and out of step with certain things and scenarios and convictions in the world. Just like Matt said today, when he sits with a group of scientists and many of them would have an atheist position, it would be very easy to be filled with a whole bunch of anxiety, become defensive, self-righteous, all of these things. But how do you do that and moderate yourself in a world where you realize that you are not on the same page about all things at all times? And so today, that's what I'd like to talk about. When we started this whole Quietly Loud series, we said it needs to start with time with God. And I believe that. Everything comes from that space. And then it's God is good. And then we talked about doing good. And then last week, the idea of doing God's good wherever you are, scattering seeds. And today, what I'd like to talk about are those moments in your life, if you identify as being a Jesus follower or Christian, in which you realize you are out of step. In fact, this applies to anyone, wherever you are, for many things, because you realize as soon as you have a conversation with someone else, you're not always on the same page about everything, right? And this can generate a whole bunch of worry, stress, and anxiety. And I wonder just in the moment if Jesus might want to whisper in your ear. When you experience anxiety, stress, fear, and worry, I want you to understand what it looks like to take courage because that's going to be part of the Jesus walk as well. And so if you want to follow with me this morning, I'm going to look at Luke chapter 12, 1 to 21, not cover the whole thing. If you have a Bible there, you want to follow with us on the phone, you can as well. And we're going to dive in. And just as you're finding that place, I want to give you quickly the backstory. The backstory is that Jesus has just drawn a line in the sand and he's got loud. And he said to two people groups, Pharisees and lawyers, 
Pharisees were a self-appointed reference group that were quite militant. They had different factions within this. One of the factions was a fundamental right-wing group that wanted to bring God's kingdom through violence and force. And the lawyers, just so you know, we're not picking on any lawyers here today, were also called the scribes. And they played an integral role in the ancient world because if someone wanted to know, what do I do to not break any of God's good commands, you would have to go to see a scribe or a lawyer because they would do what they normally do is interpret law and say, well, this is how you can keep within the bounds, and this is where you might be stepping over the bounds. And by the way, there's a whole bunch of different rabbis who will have different ideas about different things, so that's they play an important role. But Jesus has just got up their noses, and the anxiety levels in the room have just increased because he's said to the Pharisees, words to the effect of, and this is all the background, um, Jesus said to them, uh, you're supposed to shine God's light, but you're shining darkness, and this is how you do it. You're greedy, you're violent, you're unjust, you don't love God, you love people's attention and praise and honor, and uh, basically, you, he says, you are walking graves. People walk over you, and they don't realize that you're already dead. <laughs> now, will that increase the stress and anxiety in... yeah. And then the lawyers hear that what Jesus has just said to them because he's someone who's trying to reform their community from the inside out. He's not an outsider stepping in. He's an insider speaking to his community. There's a major distinction. And, and the lawyers say, you know, when you speak this way about the Pharisees, I get really, we get offended as well. And he said, and you should. <laughs> you should get offended because you're just the same. You have all this knowledge and you collect it all and you shut people out from knowing God. Wow. So you can imagine the tension and the anxiety now within the disciples. Jesus has just effectively picked a fight. Yeah? And so within that context now, let's dive on in to Luke 12, 4. This is what he says. And I tell you, my friends, so clearly now you've got some things to be concerned about because Jesus has just said what he said. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that do no more. <laughs> My, my anxiety levels just went up, right? <laughs> Kill the body? Like, this is really extreme language. But they meant it. They became very hostile towards Jesus at this stage, even leading up to Easter. This is the dynamic that's going on. Very hostile. Jesus says, do not be afraid of those, which whenever the Bible says do not be afraid, it really means when you are afraid, anxious, and worried, <laughs> that remember some things. And then it goes on and, and he says this, But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into Gehenna, which is the common name for hell. Fantastic, Jesus. My anxiety levels just went up higher, so now I'm supposed to fear someone, am I? Yeah. So many years ago, my wife and I, we took a trip to Jerusalem, and we stayed for a week in an apartment looking over Gehenna. <laughs> Seriously, on the... On the Oh, I'm going to get my north, south, east, west mixed up. At the, at the bottom of the valley where we were staying. Uh, so we're at the top looking down. It's the Hinnom Valley. And uh, it's all cleaned up now, but it used to be the ancient rubbish tip. And when we were doing a study program there, we were camped out top of what would have been Gehenna. And it's all pretty now. There's olive trees and there's a restaurant on the other side of, of the valley. But in the ancient world, it would have been the rubbish tip, uh, the, the trash collecting place where you would have thrown out all of your waste products and it would have been a smoldering sort of rubbish tip and it became symbolic in Jesus uh, world for the, the place where all of the cosmic junk of the world gets discarded and so it took on this this metaphor this image 
And so Jesus is saying, I actually don't want you to fear the people who can kill the body, which is fear and worrisome enough as it is. I want you to fear the one who actually has authority and wants people to go to this place. And so some people have said, well, actually, the person who has control of that is God. So maybe God's the one who you should be fearful of. But for me, that doesn't quite make sense because there's other places in the Bible where God says, I just want everyone to know me. That's why I came. That's why I said, in fact, I don't want anyone to be separated from me in any place. And so uh, other people have said, actually, who this is referring to is this other power that's been there from the beginning of the story of the, of, of the Christian and, and the Jewish worldview, that there was this, this other force, an evil force, um, known as the devil and various other names, that would want to actually snatch away, as we learnt last week, um, or discard or stop people from hearing about the good news of who Jesus is, that would love all of God's good creation to end up in Gehenna. And so now my anxiety levels are even higher because now I'm worried about this person. But then Jesus very quickly shifts the, the, the direction of the conversation and says this. Well, wait a second. Just as the anxiety levels have gone up for two reasons now, there's a conflict with people and now there's this other thinking. He says, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Just remember when you go to the marketplace, remember the sparrows, five are for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. God remembers them. In fact, he knows all the number of hairs on your head. And then he presses on and he says this. So don't be afraid. The ancient way of saying when you are afraid, anxious, worried or stressed. I want you to remember something. You are worth more than many sparrows. You are worth more than at least five sparrows. Okay? All of you are worth more than at least five sparrows. Or at least more than three. And that somehow the knowledge of that will shift something when you're feeling in these different levels of stress, anxiety, fear and worry. You don't have to be afraid of those things because I want to give you a bigger picture here. Not the subatomic, but the grander, the, the cosmology. Is that there's a God, there's a power, there's a force, a personal creator who actually remembers you and knows you and believes that you're of more worth than at least three or five sparrows. You see, when we're in the, this seminar with Steve Cuss, he said, often the anxieties around us are generated from some of our values and our belief systems that need to be changed and shifted. I wonder what it would change in us if you're sitting here today and you really believed this. In fact, let's just pause there right now. I wonder if you do need to believe this. But not just here, but here. So let me just pause and pray for you now. If God's Spirit is speaking to you, this prayer is for you. Father, right now in this room, we're filled with lots of anxieties and concerns and troubles from the week that's gone, the week that's coming. And so right now, here in this place... I. I ask that you might minister to people, that they might hear these words of Jesus so simple and yet so profoundly deep that people would believe that individuals right now who you're speaking to, that they are worth more than many, many sparrows and that you don't forget them, they're not forgotten. And that somehow by believing this deeply, it shifts our 
way in which we respond to fear and anxiety and worries. And so, Holy Spirit, I ask that you might minister deeply to people here. And for those individually that are so caught up and worried about something that's right to worry about, I ask that you might give them a bigger truth, that it might sit with them deeply. I pray this in Jesus' name. You see, one of the measures he invited us to do is to consider what's mine and generated, what's someone else's and they're kind of cathartically getting off, get, offloading it, and what you need to be in the habit of giving up to God because it's too big for you or even the small things. And so then Jesus goes on and he gives a promise. This is so important in the midst of fears, worries, anxieties, stress. And he makes this promise. He says, I tell you, whoever publicly acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. It's as though that if you know Jesus and you're known by the Father and you're known by the Son in his heavenly courtroom, in his throne room, he kind of tells everyone and they all know. They all know. And then he goes on and he says, not this, not because God wants to discard people, but because he actually says that often the choice is someone else's, but whoever disowns me before others will be disowned before the angels of God, not because God wants it at all. And he says, but there's the way in which the pattern falls. And so you have this situation now in which Jesus is speaking quite profoundly into some of the really deep things. In fact, he goes on and pushes it a little bit further and he says, if you say bad things about me, yeah, you can be forgiven, but if you say bad things about the Holy Spirit, that that won't be forgiven, which is kind of a bit obtuse because it's like, what's he talking about there? And Mark kind of unpacks this in his gospel account and he basically is saying, if you call the Holy Spirit, the pure spirit, the clean spirit, the good spirit, a bad one, then basically you're calling up is down and down is up and we can't do much with that. And so then Jesus anticipating that the world in which his followers will be sort of pushed into is not always a one-to-one correspondence and there will be tensions and conflicts and convictions that will not be shared by everyone. He goes on and says this. He anticipates that when, when you are brought before synagogues and rulers and authorities, there it is again, do not worry, do not be afraid. When you are worried, when you are afraid, when you are stressed, when you are, remember, about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say, which is really interesting because his answer he gives for all kinds of scenarios that a Christian will be found in is not to necessarily always go to the Bible, although don't hear me say it's don't, but rather that it's the conversation that you have with God in that moment that is the thing that's really important because you'll find yourself in situations where you go, God, I don't know what to do in this place. I want to be quietly loud. I want to shine. I want to be reflective of who you are, but I don't quite know how to do it. And he says, in that moment, you're going to have to have a conversation with God. And what you come up with actually might be different to the other Jesus person down the road. And that's okay as well, because actually it's you having conversation with God right now that's the most important thing about how you should actually respond in different scenarios. And they may not always be exactly the same. I remember many years ago, um, I've probably told this story before, I have. Some of you might not have heard it, but I was playing football down the countryside, uh, down in Gippsland, and there was a friend of mine who was playing in a different league. And their footy team, after many years, had made the grand final. 
And I was having a chat with him and I said, so how's it going? He said, well, the prep that our team said that they were going to do to actually have the grand final, I'm sorry about this, ladies, but this is just the thinking back then. It says that they were going to have topless ladies come to the bar on the Thursday night before the grand final. And I thought that would be a really good way to get all the guys sort of focused on the grand final in a few days afterwards. It's a real thing down in the footy leagues, right? And, and, and uh, I said to my friend, so what happened? What did you do? He said, straight away, I just went nut, went straight to the leadership. And I said, if you do this, God's told me that we're going to lose the grand final, right? He operated in this, right? So he's someone who would have those conversations with God, be prompted by the Holy Spirit and just sort of, you know, say it like that. I said, what happened? He said, well, nobody down the countryside wants or anywhere wants to lose a grand final, so I said, well, what happened? He says, they, 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 pulled the, they pulled the bar ladies, right? No bar ladies. I said, what happened on the Saturday? He said, we won. <laughs> <laughs> but you're often faced with situations, aren't you? You know, what do I do in this, this scenario? And when am I bold and when am I soft and how to do all of this? It's interesting because at the time in which Jesus is saying these things, it actually has a context, there was a particular cult called the Caesar cult. Julius died, and as they were having his funeral, there was a comet, maybe Halley's Comet, ascending in the sky. And they said, look, that's Julius ascending to the heavens to become God. So that every other Caesar after him was, could be self-titled the son of the god Julius. In fact, they began to be um, deified, so they would be worshipped, the Caesars. And so this was a real live proposition for many Jesus followers in the Roman Empire where they were having to deal with this tension between going to civic festivals, knowing that sometimes they would worship the deities, the other deities, and also expect you to worship and honor Caesar as Lord. And so often many of them would actually just pull back and say, actually, I'm just going to privately opt out. But even that became a problem in certain scenarios when people, citizens, noticed the opting out. And when there was a bad thing that happened, they said, it's because these people aren't worshipping our gods and because of it, we're being punished. And so there's this fascinating letter between Pliny and Trajan, the emperor. He says, I don't know what to do with these Jesus people. Um, but when they're brought before me, I, I give them a choice. Here's the choice I give them. I say... If you curse Jesus and you offer sacrifice to Caesar as Lord, then I won't kill you. And if you do curse Jesus and, don't, uh, and offer sacrifice to Caesar, then I will keep you alive. What choice would you like to make? Because he then said, we know that the authentic Jesus people would never curse Jesus. Wow. That was their live proposition. How interesting. It wasn't across the Roman Empire, but in pockets for about 300 years. That was their real life choice. And so within this context, Jesus is speaking most profoundly and most real. This is the context you imagine we get from when Paul writes a letter to the Romans and says this. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, aha, uh -huh, not Caesar, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be rescued, saved, you'll be with him. And so that confession becomes really quite contextually profound in that situation. So then Jesus, speaking to his disciples, gives them this pressure, gives them this insight, gives them this, this truth, not pressure. 
And so I wonder over the last 20 years as I've been looking and inhabiting church life, if we're not going through right now in the Western world, a sifting of sorts. See, the push and the pull of culture has always been present and always will be. And maybe this is an overstatement, but if I could see some of the pushes and pulls that I think many people who are Jesus followers are feeling in the Western culture right now, is that some church, if you like, some has been defined more by, if, if I can actually just um, come alongside Jesus and get all the good stuff for, for, for me to actually discover more about sort of who I am for myself, and it can become very individualized. It's about me. And then there's other expressions of church life that can become quite militant in this context and say, well, if we can just somehow achieve God's aims through the ballot box, then we'll actually be able to, just like the Pharisees, bring the kingdom of heaven through another coercive way, which is challenging a democracy, isn't it? And then there's also the rise of the celebrity church, which is all about, actually, if you get enough cool people and, and if you actually dress a particular way, then you'll actually become more appealing to the wider world around about. And you sail really close. And the challenge in that kind of scenario is that what's of Jesus and what's kind of just not? And what's making promises that you can't cash? Because at the heart of it, Christianity is, is actually not a popularity contest. And so I wonder what it would look like if, if actually the Jesus followers are being challenged again. And say, what is a faithful persevering kind of expression of following Jesus look like in the midst of a complex world in which there's fears and worries and anxieties. And so Jesus finishes with this. He says, I tell you, do not worry, which is code for when, when you do worry, when you are anxious and when you are stressed and when you... Don't worry about your life, what you eat or your body or what you will wear. I want you to, to know this. Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? Let's just do the maths for a moment. Has there anyone here who has discovered how to turn worry into added time in your life? Right? I reckon that would be pretty good. We could market that. Right? We can take all of your worry and somehow just add like days, weeks, years to your life. If, has anyone? Could you talk to me afterwards? No, no. It robs you. Of. So he asks you to inhabit a different world, a different thinking. He says, I want you to do this. In the midst of sometimes your worries, your concerns, your fears, don't stop seeking God's kingdom because that, in the midst of the stresses, anxieties, and worries that this world brings about, is something you could be so easily distracted from. So do not fear, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the wealth of his knowledge, the whole expanse of his goodness, of his heavenly realm, calling upon your life. And I want you to remember. Remember the sparrows? I want you to inhabit that space and be in, the, be in the practice of asking God in that moment, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to live? Because it's that dynamic that's so important. If you like, he wants you to live in the knowledge of his bigness. doesn't mean there's always going to be straight lines. It's all going to work out. But it means in the midst of those, that's what he promises. Yeah. So I'll finish with this. There's one time in my life I realized that I'm not in control because we're all control freaks in degrees, right? I'm sorry, I'm just saying it. We're all control freaks just in some ways. We like to control our world. But the one time in my life where I realize I'm totally out of control and I'm aware of that, I'm awakened to that, is when I get on an aircraft. Because I do the maths or the science or the physics of it, and I go, once again, tons of metal. 
in the air. And I'm not, I don't even have a steering wheel like I do in a car, right? I have the semblance of being in control, out of control. And the pilot, who I don't even know, is flying this thing, right? So I'm in the habit. You look around when you're on an aircraft, and there's some people who are doing the white knuckle thing. There are some who've got the beads of sweat. There's some who've got the headphones that are doing this. Why are you doing that? Don't you know? <laughs> and then I will sit there and be in the habit of practicing a prayer of Jesus, which will be, God, right now, I'm totally out of control. I'm not in control. But I believe that you are. Come what may. So into your hands, I commit my spirit. That's what I do. So the good thing of this, and Dan, come on up for a moment. We're going to make a shift. Is that there's someone in the room here who, if you want to up the levels of my anxiety, it's get me in a small aircraft. Someone in the room about 10 years ago who used to be a pilot for MAF, we were flying from Dili over to Suai. And, and the, the curious thing is that Brad was uh, an apprentice in the, the church that I was already. He was an engineer, and then he was working in the church. Not as an apprentice, that's the wrong word, but in, in leadership as well. And then a number of years later, he's flying an aircraft, which is like a single prop. That's right, Brad, a single prop. Yeah. And, and he's flying over Suai, uh, to Dili to Suai because there's a school that we've been helping build back then. And there's this storm that breaks out and we have to land and then he and I go up afterwards to try and find out if there's a way we can fly back that night. And when we land at this remote airfield, there's a village on either side and there's someone who's walking across with a pig, half a pig on each end of the pole. And I'm like, wow, we're in a different place right now, right? And so there we are in this, this single prop aircraft and we're flying up and he says, I can't use my instruments. We've got to actually find blue gaps in the sky. And then we can fly out, leave everyone else behind, but fly, we can get away. And he goes, just look for it. And there he is, he's, I think, doing something called trimming the wings. I don't want anyone to trim the wings when I'm flying, but it's some device or something that looks really rudimentary and scary. Now, I don't want to liken Brad to God, but I'm about to. He said, if there was someone who I'd want to be the pilot more than anyone else, it was Brad. Because I got to know him. And I got to know that we could chatter, chatter, chatter outside the plane, but inside the plane, he's like, I am the pilot. And he would go through everything perfectly, right? Even that night when we had to pull the seats out because we stayed overnight and we slept in <laughs> we slept in this light aircraft. I had this sense in which even though I'm out of control and he's not totally in control, but he was safe. And I think that's where we need to be with God often living in that space I wonder how he might be speaking to you today because in a moment I'm going to invite you to participate in a communion space and at the heart of this communion space is a confession I believe that Jesus is my Lord my King my Boss and it's an opportunity to reassess and recommit and say, I want to thank you for what you've done. And I really do believe you've risen to new life. So my life is in your hands, ultimately. And maybe as you, if you would like to participate in this time, go ahead and take a cup and take um, a piece of, of bread or wafer. Maybe you want to serve someone. Go and sit back down and pause for a moment 
and remember the sparrows. Yeah? And once you've remembered the sparrows, maybe you need to hear the words again. Speak to me about how to respond in different situations. But take courage because following Jesus in this world is going to require courage. And then why don't you quietly or maybe in, in a small group, just as you drink and eat, maybe you declare, Jesus, you are my king. You are my Lord. Thank you. If you're new here today and you wonder, am I welcome to that too? Well, if you want to thank Jesus for what he's done and who he is, then take one of these cards and read it through and participate. If you want to draw close to him, his arms are open wide. Yeah. So as the band plays, I'm just going to invite you. If you would like to draw close to God, he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do it in remembrance of me. And he said, he took a cup and he said, this is my blood of a new covenant, a new agreement that I'm making between God and humans. So often as you meet together, drink this in remembrance of me because one day I'm going to bring it all together, I'm going to put the world to rights and I'm going to welcome you home because that's where you belong with me. So, as you feel led, why don't you go ahead now and draw close to Him?